Welcome to Festival Nation on the Pantheon Podcast Network. Here's your host, Marla Davies. Hey now, welcome to Festival Nation, the podcast where we celebrate the magical world of music festivals from the good old days through today and even tomorrow. Festival Nation here on the Pantheon Podcast Network is featuring a special mini-series on Skull and Roses, and we'll be dedicating a series of shows featuring the musicians playing at the festival. Skull and Roses is a multi-day festival celebrating the music and community of the Grateful Dead. Skull and Roses returns April the 2nd through the 5th for its fourth anniversary at the legendary Ventura County Fairgrounds on the Central California coast. On today's show, we welcome Dennis McNally, author, historian, and longtime publicist for The Grateful Dead, and he's the promoter for the upcoming Skull and Roses Festival. Dennis is known for writing Desolate Angel, Jack Kerouac, The Beat Generation, and America, and A Long Strange Trip, The Inside History of The Grateful Dead. Dennis McNally was also the publicist for The Grateful Dead for over a decade. He lived and breathed the Grateful Dead culture and lifestyle for many moons. Jerry Garcia even walked his wife Susanna down the aisle at their wedding. And Billy Kreutzman was his best man. And as you expect, he went to over 1,100 Grateful Dead shows. When the band, you know, finished the last show of a run, we literally, you know, they come down the stage steps and there would be two vans. Uh-huh. And, and the catering guy standing there with lunch bags, which included bottles of wine. Phil got his peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, considering what he could have gotten, or full four-course meals, I, you know, whatever. And you grabbed your bag, and you got in the van, and you went for 20 minutes. It was always 20 minutes. You'd go for 20 minutes to the nearest airport. You would drive out on the tarmac. That would be a... Uh, a rented or leased um, G3 corporate jet. You would get in the jet. You would fly usually somewhere between half an hour and an hour, reverse the process, and two hours after the last note, you were in the next hotel, which is to say there were people still in the parking lot. Festival Nation. Please, let's give a big Festival Nation welcome to Dennis McNally. Hello, this is very exciting. I'm hanging out right now with Dennis McNally, author, historian, and longtime publicist for The Grateful Dead. Hey, Dennis. Hiya. We're at Dennis's lovely house here in San Francisco. Thanks for inviting us in. Well, and particularly because, of course, we're in a room that I never do interviews in because the entire world is going, getting shredded in front of my front door. <laughs> it's very busy here. It's very busy. They're They're... they're Replacing the hundred-year-old sewer system of uh, San Francisco, at least on my block. Okay, it could be worse. I mean, it could smell. There's no odor. No, no, not yet. No, but they, you know, there's a lot of digging and a lot of sound. <laughs> there's a lot of digging, indeed. Well, I mean, it's a busy, it's busy here in where you live here in the city, uh, but you, you've you're used to busy. I mean, you were the publicist for the dead for eons, many moons, many moons, and uh, when I started. Um, which is pre-internet, of course. Right. Um, I got about a hundred phone calls a day. Old school. That was that was that was the only school at the time, uh, <laughs> and, and um, 
a ringing tele. I mean, seriously, a hundred phone calls a day. It might sound, uh, eh, eh. That's a do lot. Emails. Trust me, that it's quite a lot. Yeah. And you answered all the calls, or just the ones you wanted to? Oh no, I don't know where it came. Uh, I, I actually, I can tell you where it came from. My predecessor was a gifted and inspired guy by the name of Rock Scully, <clears throat> and he he did some wonderful things for the Grateful Dead. Meticulous was not one of them. Okay. Um, chasing him down, getting him to do anything, particularly you know by the eighties. Uh, well, that's why I replaced him. You replaced him in the early 80s. In the early, in 1984. And uh, uh, so I took it as my credo, and I, to this day, uh, that I had to answer all calls and that I had to respond, even if it was like a high school kid who wanted help on his paper. Um, since then, uh, there have been maybe two or three people who were, so extremely disturbed that I said, nah, yeah, that one I'm not going to return. But 99% uh, or better, um, it's, that's... That's that's cool. That's it, nice. It was... The, You're a nice person, Dennis. Well, it seemed the obligation. Professional. I, I And, you know, I um, I wanted to be um, the Grateful Dead's biographer for a long time. And Jerry said, "You, why don't you do it? And I... Um, and... Other and all my life, you know, when I wanted, when I started with uh, my first book, with uh, the Kerouac book, people who you know had no reason to be nice to me said, "Yes, sure, come on over." Um, so um, just like paying it forward type thing. Yeah, yeah, you gotta. Well, you know, I was a young radio girl in the day because I started following the Dead in early '80s. Mm-hmm. Went on the '83 tour. You know, that was such fun. And I was, you know, dabbling in radio, and I had a little, you know, we had a little conversation, and you helped me out, and you were very pleasant. So there you go. I, I confirmed. One of my standard questions, though, when there was a period, shall we say, of um, intel- unintelligent living, further details not needed, you can guess. <laughs> uh, by who? I, you or well, other by, people? By oh, me. Oh, okay. In my earliest days with the Grateful Dead, and so that when people say either... Um, oh, yeah, we did such and such. And I said, was I nice? Or um, you yelled at me a little. And I said, did you deserve it? And most <laughs> of the time I say yes. But, you know, after 1987, I stopped yelling. So. Uh, oh, yeah, you got a little bit better perspective. All, all over. And, and I'm, I got to say, it, it, it made for uh, uh, suddenly having a lot more time on tour. Uh, because those days off, instead of recovering, uh, I was going out and seeing the world. That's what I was going to ask you about, surviving on tour. I mean, you toured with the band? 11 years. Right, so you, you were sort of like an unofficial band member. Well, I mean, I was part of 25 people that, uh, that went along for the ride. Um, and uh, yeah, no, it was, it was remarkable. It, it was incredibly well-organized and efficient. Um, when the band you know, finished the last show of a run, we literally, you know, they come down the stage steps, and there would be two vans, uh-huh. and and the catering guys standing there with lunch bags, which included bottles of wine. Phil got his peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, considering what he could have gotten, or full four course meals, I, you know, whatever. And you 
grabbed your bag and you got in the van and you went for 20 minutes. It was always 20 minutes. You go for 20 minutes to the nearest airport. You would drive out on the tarmac. There would be a, uh, a, a rented or a leased um, G3 corporate jet. You would get in the jet. You would fly usually somewhere between half an hour and an hour. Reverse the process. And two hours after the last note, you were in the next hotel. Which is to say, there were people still in the parking lot. You know, <laughs> yes, of lots course. of people still in the parking lot. That's we, part of the fun. And we had not only was it like one in the morning, which is you know relatively early for us, um, but you had a day off in front of you, um, and then you know the, the next day to get ready for to go back to work. So there was time there if you weren't spending all your time sleeping because you had, you're partying because you were partying too much. Um, Which there was a lot of that too. Uh, well, there, as I say, there, there had been. Um, you know, the older we got, <laughs> the saner we got, and the, the, the less the less partying uh, went along. But after after a while, I mean, I got to, I went to the to uh, you know, Cooperstown and and uh, you went sightseeing museum. when you had some time. Uh, Might as well, right? And I was always, you know, there was always friends with a car who were following the tour, so they'd give me a ride to you know wherever. Um, so yeah. Um, the best thing I ever did for the Grateful Dead was, uh, outside of being a publicist, was um, I, I beca became sort of de facto the, uh, the fun and games coordinator. Oh, what um, a great job. And um, we, um, we were in Chicago, and there was this really fantastic uh, Monet show at the uh, Chicago Art Institute. And I made a phone call, and I took credit, but it really wasn't me. Somebody important at Ticketmaster called the the, uh, the museum, and uh, we ended up getting like an hour alone. Mm. Um, uh, and all all they said was, "Would you please sign some autographs when they're done?" Because these people are volunteering to stay an hour late after work. To which I said, "Yeah, I think the guys will do that." I mean, you know, Jerry couldn't go to museums most of the time. It right, right, of course. Nuts. So he went and. Um, and uh, you know it was just just us in this in these, this fantastic show. And then the sweet thing was, a month later or so, we uh, we were in Paris, and everybody uh, had been in Paris before, uh, one way or another. So um, we we got a bus and we went out to uh, to Monet's house. Oh, nice! And. Um, Ramrod, who was the crew chief and who was um, uh, not not an art museum guy, but uh, a gardener, um, we were walking around Monet's garden and uh, smoking a joint, actually. And, of course. Uh, and uh, <laughs> he looked around and he said, you know, because he'd been at the art show and sort of been dragged by his wife, and he said, you know, he got it right. <laughs> That's I'm sure you have many stories to tell about your adventures. Well, Ramrai Ram was a man of great, succinct wisdom. So, yeah. Dennis McNally, who is a historian and author and longtime publicist for The Grateful Dead. And one time you said, Jerry said to you, you know, your number one rule was we don't suck up to the press. That was, that was my, uh, my job training. Uh, that was it. <laughs> so I got hired because um, somebody, the receptionist said, Look, nobody's returning the media's phone calls. You know, what's what's what are we going to do about it? And Jerry said, "Get McNally to do it. He knows that shit." <laughs> and and uh, I hadn't been a publicist, but I did basically know that 
I had done a book tour, so I had an idea what a publicist did. It and just had faith in you, really. And Jerry yeah. liked you. And and the fact is that I'd been around, at that point I'd been working on the biography for three years, so everybody had some clue. I hadn't pissed off anybody too much. Mm-hmm. Um, so he said, I'll tell him what to do. So I went up to his house, true story, I went up to his house, and, uh, and yeah, he s- s- sat me down. He said, first off, we don't suck up to the press. And I, I, I think I even wrote it down. No, don't Taking suck notes. Taking notes. And then he said, eh, that covers it. Here, smoke this. <laughs> and that was my job training. And that's not, I'm, I'm telling the straight truth. And what a great job. I mean, well, first of all, this the, my podcast is about festivals, Festival Nation. And the dead, every concert had its own element of, it was a, it was a circus. It was a, like a traveling circus, really. It, it was a traveling circus. And, and the, the irony, of course, was that, you know, to most people, festivals mean multiple bands. Sure. And in the summer when we did stadiums, um, we always had opening acts, uh, only, only in the summer. And the, the funny part of that was, of course, that only Jerry, it, the, we had these opening acts only because of Jerry, because he was guilty for playing in a stadium, which is not acoustically the ideal environment. It's, not, um, it's big, and it's not as intimate. And It's not as intimate, and uh, as he said, you have to play to the last row, mm-hmm. and you have to make your, you have to make your music, nuance is impossible, you have to make your music like a cartoon, simple. Um, and we, so the crew was not in love with having an opening act because it meant more work. Mm-hmm. The audience didn't care because they, and the classic example was um, we had Crosby, Stills, and Nash opening for us. It was in Pittsburgh. Oh, my hometown. And, um, and uh, it was a sold out show and everybody knew it. And it, but it was general, it was a reserved seat. Even on, even the, on the stadium, floor. even on the floor of the stadium, it was reserved seat. And um, there were maybe 2,000 people in the v- venue when they were supposed to go on. And Stephen Still said, I'm not going on. There's 2,000 people out there. It's 60,000. I'm Stephen Stills, God forbid. I'm, I'm Stephen Stills. <laughs> and eventually, our manager had to tell their manager, if you guys would like to be paid for today, get on the stage and play. Because if you play, they'll come in. Right. And they did, and it worked out. But, but uh, yeah, the, but the, as I say, the, the rest of the band could, didn't matter. But Jerry was like, look, if we're going to put them in, make them get into a stadium, we need to fill the, you know, we need to give them something extra. Make it a little bit more. And yeah. so we had these wonderful opening acts. I mean, you know. And, uh, um, and I, I would miss the opening act often because I just loved hanging out in the parking lot, dead, <laughs> you know, getting you a little shakedown street there. Dead, deadheads, you know, that was, I, I, I won't brag about that aspect of Deadheads because, you know, seriously, I mean, Sting in 1994. Yes. Had a, you know, Ten Sumner's Tales was a great album and um, he had a great band and, um, you know, he had a band so good that, that Mickey Hart, was like had his eyes locked on the drummer for the whole tour. The guy and right now I'm going I'm pulling a blank on his name, but the guy was brilliant. And um, so you know, and Mickey's what you call picky. Yeah. So uh, you know, for him to like, you know, he was like really impressed. Um, so yeah, we um, there was there was great stuff. But which caused the cre- you know the creative the the festival kind of 
yeah. atmosphere, even though, the, well, the dead, you know, they were at Woodstock. They played a million festivals before they kind of got their own road show going. They, you know, they played them all. They played at Monterey and they played, you know, some of the most important ones. The, um, of course, Woodstock was legendarily, according to them, the worst show they ever played. Um, it was short. Uh, I heard, I've heard it. Well, it was, uh, well, you haven't heard it all because I, I don't know which part you heard, but it was about an hour, which, which is short for a dead for show. For them was incredibly <laughs> short. Um, the, they made a huge mistake. I was talking about this with Mickey. We, we did a thing at the Peanuts Museum, Charles Schultz oh, okay. Museum, because, you know, the little bird in, in, the, in the comic Woodstock, yeah. Woodstock, so, so they wanted to do something to celebrate Woodstock. And, um, we were talking about it, and, and Mickey said, yeah, you know, I know it was a, a disaster, but why? And I, well, I listed, you know, the stage wasn't grounded. Um, the, you know, there Bob was, was getting electrocuted, and so was Jerry. There were, there were voices coming out of the speakers from the helicopters because they oh. were picking up the radio oh my. signal. People were running around behind them saying, the stage is collapsing, the stage is collapsing. So there's a sense of panic. There was panic in the air, et cetera. And I finally saw some video of it in the 40th anniversary box set. Um, there's actual, the only video. And the stage looks like it's lit by two candles. Oh, it's completely dark up there. Because the power was fluctuating dramatically. And they did not, you know, in rock and roll, the power doesn't go to the sound system. That's a tenth of the power. Mm -hmm. Most of the power goes to the lights. Mm -hmm. And these lights were not getting enough power. So there was this slight, you could sort of murkily make out figures standing there. Okay. But you weren't actually watching a normal, so no one, I mean, so no wonder they didn't put them in the movie. There was nothing to see. Right, it was complete darkness. Well, Pretty much. Things have changed a lot, and you're, you're promoting, let's talk about Skull and Roses a little bit. You're promoting Absolutely. Skull and Roses. I am. This is the fourth anniversary that's going to be at the Ventura County Fairgrounds. I can't wait to go back there. I saw the dead there. Of course, it's sort of like a mecca for deadheads. It's 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 an exceptional spot. Mm -hmm. It was it's a dirt track. You know they do car races. Oh, okay, dirt car races, which is w what endeared it to Jerry. He loved it. I mean, first he loved playing outdoors because acoustically it's the ideal. Um, it's literally when you're standing on the stage, you're looking out at the Pacific Ocean, oh, which yeah. is amazing. Not, not too shabby. No, um, it's funky. The, you know, it's a county fairgrounds, and it's you know really laid back and 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 uh, uh, sweet, and so it's as uh, this guy Chris Mitrovich, who's a uh, he doesn't look like a hippie, but he's a in at heart a, a complete hippie. Um, you can't judge a book by its cover, right? Not in his case. And he he uh, he started this. I, uh, I I missed the first one, but I've been involved with the last two, and um, I'll go back. See. I assumed, you know, I'm supposed to be an expert or whatever. I mean, I wrote, I wrote a book anyway um, that, uh, you know, and I spent a lot of time around the Grateful Dead, and I, I, I always assumed that deadheadism would um, dwindle away the way everything dwindles, right? You know, that is the way of the world. Um, and what I did not realize was, well, A, that I was wrong, but, but B, that in particular, I think, because of Fare Thee Well, um, that instead of signaling the end, it, it lit a match and started it all over again. Or it ignited it. something. It reignited it to, to ten times the level. I swear there are more deadheads now than there were in 1995. 
I went to a, a J-Rad show um, at the at um, uh, Frost Amphitheater at, at Stanford. The newly remodeled. Very I haven't good. been to the newly remodeled. Stunning. It was <laughs> and why, why won't be disappointed? Well, it's, it's really beautiful, and they didn't mess with the sound, which, thank God, because we liked playing there, but it largely... But it was hilarious because when we played there, there was zero infrastructure behind the stage. Mm. Um, as a re- I mean, everything was brought in for the show, and the, uh, like the catering area was a deck over on one side, and then you sort of walked a little mountain goat track to get to the stage. I mean, it was, it was yeah. the side of a hill. Mm-hmm. Um, now it's deluxe. You know, they spent a lot of money at Stanford, they... Right, because I saw the dead. I became, I actually became a deadhead after one of those shows in 1982. Yeah, Frost Amphitheater, 1010. Yeah, 1982, and I, I just remember the field and the grass, and I'm sure it's seats now. No, no, no. Oh, there's still a field. Okay, good. It's still an open amphitheater. It's a little, it's a, it's better enclosed and a little fancier, schmancier. But, but no, the 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 basic vibe has not changed. Oh, good. It's a great show. And the only reason I brought that up was to say, and I'm. I, I, I got in early, lucky, and just, and I turned, and I, so I was up on the rail, and I turned around during the show several times, and the age range behind me was exactly the same as any Grateful Dead concert, which is to say, from 16 to 80, mm-hmm. you know, just, uh, so, all these people who were 16 and 20, you know, 16 and into their 20s, who were not born when Jerry tapped out are deadheads and they're the same people that they would have been 30 years ago and it's 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 downright freaky and what i realized what i've come to realize and what chris uh chris mitrovich is the guy's name the guy from la who started uh, skull and roses what chris realized um before me was that deadheads were after um after fairly well deadheads were fans not just of the Grateful Dead band, but of the music. It was their music, and it, it's not that it didn't matter, but it was a matter of taste who played it, and that music itself was a genre. Um, Bruce Hornsby called them hymns. Oh, he did? Yeah, and he's right. I mean, you know, Hunter wrote a lot of hymns, and I'm not just talking about like a ripple. Um, the songs are, are now part of the modern American songbook. So... Chris put together this um, uh, concept of having 2030, whatever it is, um, dead, we don't use the word cover band, but we don't. bands that play dead music. Okay, because a cover band is demeaning. Yeah, it, it demeans the band. Um, that you know, does. It's a question of how you play it and what, what you put into it. Um, but bands that play uh, dead music, and this year, you know, we've got our first a dead uh, member of the Grateful Dead, uh, Bill Kreutzmann. Oh, this is the first time uh, that we've had a, whoa, a band that's, member. That ma- legitimizes the whole thing. Yep, and uh, Billy and the Kids is mm-hmm. coming, and then uh, the, uh, the second night, a member of uh, Dead and Company, O'Teal, O'Teal and Friends, is on Saturday night, and Sunday night is Steve Kimock and Voodoo Dead, um, which is... It's very solid. Uh, oh, it's a great lineup. It really, it, I mean, it gets better and better, and... Um, this year, there's more fancies. Uh, there's going to be, you know, there's a GA plus ticket so that you can you can get special seating, and there's there's going to be uh, interviews and um, um, perf- uh, solo acoustic or private, you know, small acoustic performances. 
um, with a very limited audience at a building that's right next to the, 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 the bowl, the, the actual arena. Um, so in general, um, it's going to be a little uh, buffed up. A little bit more. We just talked to Graham Lesh, and he said he and Elliot, of course, Graham is in Midnight North. He and Elliot are going to do a special, one of right. those special things. That's, that's one of those. Those and little fancies. It'll be the, the, that'll be at a place called Hunter's Hall, which is, as I say, it's a enclosed building you know, uh, as part of the fairgrounds. Um, I'm going to, they're going to, God knows why anybody wants to listen to me, but they're going to. Are gonna, you going to speak? I'm, oh, well, I'm going to be interviewed. Somebody's going to have to be stuck with interviewing me. Um, Jay Blakesburg will get interviewed. Um, I think Steve, Big Steve. Big Steve Parrish. Well, that makes um, it more educational. You feel like, hey, we, you know, we're not just dummies. We're not just partying here. We're actually learning things. And, and so, you know, there'll be that going on. And there's, you know, going to be all the. The, the, the shakedown street aspects and so forth and so on, and camping. And you were saying that the, the community of the Grateful Dead, the people love the music, not just the Grateful Dead, but even that dead, Grateful Dead-esque music. But you know what else? The people love each other. It's funny because when the, the dead come to town, my husband always says, "Hun, your people are here. <laughs> so I, I need to be with my people, you know. <laughs> the... Um, Contrarily, I, I knew I knew a few uh, young deadheads who. Well, Roger McNamee tells the story of his uh, early life, where um, he um, was, you know, was a big deadhead, and then fell in love with a woman, and she was anti-dead. Oh no! As I said, uh, these mixed marriages never work. <laughs> did it? No. That kind. No, it did not. And then, and then he met um, uh, his uh, his current wife, Anne, and and. Uh, they, she wasn't much of a dead. She was a musicologist, and she wasn't much of a deadhead. But she, she got inducted really rapidly, and she also knew how to keep score in baseball. So she that was helps. A, a total keeper. Well, my girlfriend, I always go with her. She, she's my old college roommate. Love her, Teresa. And I said, I love going with you because you know how to act, and and that really helps. It helps. I, I brought a I brought a stranger to a dead concert once, and it. it, it Lovely woman, and we, you know, we had a lot of good times together. But um, it, I, I, I marked that at the end of that night. I said, "I'm not doing that again." It's just too much. Too much stress. It's not supposed to be stressful. I was worrying. About, you know, I was trying to sort of take care of her. Mm. Whatever. That's but, never uh, going to work. The thing is, there, there, there were two great things the Grateful Dead did that were truly unique, uh, truly distinct. Um, one was that they fused true improvisation into rock and roll forms, which other people might have imp improvisational leads. Jimi Hendrix certainly did. Mm -hmm. uh, Greg Allman certainly did. Um, but when with everybody in the band improvising, um, you hadn't really seen that in American music since early um, New Orleans, what we came to call jazz. So that was one thing. Uh, the other was uh, they, and Jerry swore it wasn't his fault. He swore that the, the deadhead, I didn't do that, you the deadheads did that. But they created a community. And it was a, this safe space. And, and they were partly responsible for it because they did any number of things. Like, for instance, come as close to bankrupting themselves as possible to create the perfect sound system. <laughs> yes. Because that was the way they communicated with their audience. And, you know, we we worked with promoters year after year, the same promoters. We never, you know, we never went for the quick buck. 
we worked for um, we worked with the promoters so that they would treat our audience the way we wanted them treated and with respect with respect festival nation celebrating the magical world of music festivals hey i'm marla davies and we're with dennis mcnally author historian and longtime publicist for the grateful dead and promoter of the upcoming Skull and Roses Festival, celebrating the music and community of the Grateful Dead April 2nd through the 5th at the Ventura County Fairgrounds. On the way, we'll hear more about the Skull and Roses Festival, tales from Dennis's long, strange trip with the Grateful Dead, and wise words from the Hells Angels about not getting arrested. The thing I kept saying to Deadheads was, listen, take the advice of the Hells Angels. They know something about this. Only commit one crime at a time. If you're going to be holding something that the police don't want you to be, then don't commit some other crime, like, for instance, um, driving in a car with uh, you know, some kind of um, excuse to pull it over. More after this. Festival Nation. Hey now, hanging out with Dennis McNally, author, historian, and longtime publicist for The Grateful Dead and promoter of the upcoming Skull and Roses Festival, celebrating the music and community of The Grateful Dead. That's April the 2nd through the 5th at the Ventura County Fairgrounds. We're talking about the dead and the dead and their fans. You know, I always felt that the dead really cared about their fans. Oh, they did care. They, you know, when... when we were in situations when the police, you know, deadheads were an easy, you know, if you... An easy target. If a local DA and the local police department wanted to make a bunch of cheap arrests, we were, you know, we had a... I almost got arrested. We had a, you know, big <laughs> old bullseye on the on our back and the back of everybody in the audience. And, and so it was easy. And the crowd sticks out. Look at the clothes. Look at the tie-dye. Look at the antics. The... the um, the, the thing I kept saying to deadheads was, listen, take the advice of the Hells Angels. They know something about this. Only commit one crime at a time. If you're going to be holding something that the police don't want you to be, then don't commit some other crime, like, for instance, um, driving in a car with uh, you know, some kind of um, excuse to pull it over. Well... The reality was that a dead, you know, a bumper sticker on your car. That's why I never had a deadhead bumper sticker mm-hmm. because it's advertising uh, what you might not want to advertise. Uh, and I watched countless, you know, so-called uh, sobriety checkpoints after shows be used as an excuse to, you know, bust people. Bust people. Um, so uh, we, you know, and the the band would get. Let's put it this way. There was one particularly awful day, um, and it was very strange. Obviously, there had been a big change of policy. Um, we had been in Louisville um, a couple of times at Freedom Hall, and it had been great, fine. As a matter of fact, it was hilarious. We, we were at Freedom Hall, and uh, I might be conflating shows, but the way I'm I sure they get it, mixed up after a while. They certainly do, and the way I remember it, there was um, a, a, a motorcycle convention, a Jehovah's Witness encampus, encampment, and us. Oh, my. And um, the parking lot, there's the stadium and uh, the arena, uh, and it's, an enormous, it's a huge complex, so it's a big parking lot. So there was room for a lot of stuff. 
And I was sort of looking at this going, well, that's interesting. There's all these different worlds colliding. Uh, but at one point, we played the football, uh, the, the stadium. Mm-hmm. And there were 500 arrests. I mean, you know, it was oh. one of those where they decided, okay, let's just bring in the buses and, bu- you know, bust everybody walking around smoking a joint. Well, you know, um, we obviously didn't go back. Uh, let's just, you know, we leave it at that. That it was something the band cared about quite deeply. I remember we went to Greensboro, North Carolina. Yeah. And it was the same situation. I mean, I had to get my boyfriend out of jail after the show. Of course, after the show, because I had... <laughs> <laughs> well, you didn't expect me to leave in the middle of the show, did you? I remember, you know, in Charlotte, they had a jail in the, the building. In the, oh, my. It was a you know, NBA, I assume it's still where the Hornets play, though I have no idea. Um, but, yeah, they had a... The, they gave space to the local police to have their own jail in, in the building. Uh, Let me just say that's a total bummer because, you know, nobody wants to get arrested at a show, God forbid. No, although I do. You, know, you never uh, got arrested, did you? No, no. Okay. Uh, but I, I just remember there was, a, there was a young lady who was way too high. And she was taking her clothes off. Because <laughs> they just goes together, <laughs> suddenly and, stripping. And, and, I, and I said, and I was like talking to her, trying to get her attention and trying to, you know, vibe in. I said, listen, listen, if you keep doing that, you're going to end up in jail. And the cop was standing about 10 feet away. I said, you know, you just don't want to end up in jail. It's a, it's a boring place, you know. Please, please keep your clothing on. And, you know, I thought I'd just about gotten through. And then she <laughs> hauled off and went and spit at me. Oh, And I sort of lurched backward to duck didn't succeed entirely oh at which point she finished getting undressed at which point the police oh. went in and i went i, I tried you. i warned I tried. you so skull and roses how are we going to make sure think crazy things like that is there still going to be you think a lot of nudity or i have not seen any nudity oh. in skull and roses and i will i will say uh, as a matter of fact Although I, I've already said that the age range is just the same as it ever was, um, crowd behavior. Remember, it's a lot smaller than a Grateful Dead concert. Uh, the, the capacity in the past has been three thousand. It might get up a little past four this year. But the fact yeah. is, that's a relatively small crowd, and it doesn't encourage the um, the kind of behaviors. I don't remember. I think I saw cops sort of wandering around on the very edges of things. But the answer is the vibe is much more tranquil at Skull and Roses. It's it's a smaller scale. It's and a small, and that's nice. It's a, little, it's a healthier vibe. I, I, family, it's a family experience. I, you can bring kids. I, oh, very much so, and I've seen lots of them. And the, I have not been in a stadium or a show of that dimension um, since Jerry. I mean, I... I as sometimes people ask me, oh, will you go to this? You know, and I was like, listen, I used to get paid a lot of money to walk through crowds like that, you know, and you'd have to do it again because, you know, it's it's just not the ideal. I mean, I understand wanting to go to a, a giant festival, um, and for the young, I think most mostly it's it's the young. You know, it's like great, have a great time. I would I would have and did do it when I was young, but I'm not, and 
I'd just as soon be a little more comfortable, and 4,000 people is about right. It's about right, plus the VIP experience at Skull and Roses. Now, what is your thought about that? I mean, things have... Things have changed. There wasn't always a VIP uh, arena, but it's it's pretty popular, and people do like creature comforts. They they do, and, and you know, I mean, that's the, 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 in some ways those people uh, who want you know the extras um, are kind of financing the show for everybody else. Ah, it's uh, a nice so, way to look at it. So I I you know that's one of the things. Well, rather than think, oh, you know, you have to you, know, you have to have your own special seating area, um, rather than sneer at that, I, I, I recognize that, that you know, it, it kind of makes everything work. Um, and, it, and it's certainly true. I mean, it's 2020, and a lot of people want, you know, that, that little, you know, that extra comfort level. And um, this year they're going to be able to get it in, in ways that they hadn't in the past. I'm hoping that you said there's camping. I hope there's an element of glamping then. <laughs> or not. I... I I don't honestly know. If, if it is, it's because you're going to bring along your own glamp. Cause, uh, yeah, bring your I, own glamp. I don't think I'm supplying it. You're not, I just got to have my double air mattress, things all, like that. All that. Yeah, no, if you want to bring it. Bring your own. Bring your own. Bring your own glamp. Dennis McNally, who is the author, historian, and longtime publicist for The Grateful Dead. How many shows do you think you've been to? How many Grateful Dead shows? Did you lose count, or did you count, or just... I gave it up. No, um, over eleven hundred. Oh. <laughs> I well, my friends quite rightly, I agree with them, say that um, I can only claim the two hundred I went to before I got hired. Um, uh. when, I was, when I was paying, you know, when I was buying tickets. Um, after that, there were roughly uh, from nineteen eighty four to nineteen ninety five. There were roughly nine hundred shows and. Uh, and, and I can't claim those because you, know, you were working and you were getting paid. I, I was getting paid, but I still saw every second set. It's funny because we talked to Graham Lesh, who's also going to be, be playing at Skull and Roses too, and he said he saw a lot of first sets because he was a little kid. He was a little kid, and he'd have to go to bed. No, absolutely, and you know, a very solid family. There's not, none of that. Let the kid run run around until midnight. Um, I have a vivid, vivid memory. My wife Susanna is one of the Grateful Dead's best photographers, and uh, one of my, I don't know, stuck in my memory, especially now when I run into Graham, who's an excellent guy, but I just remember a picture of him with these big, you know, noise-canceling headphones, right. standing on this, there's a picture she took of him on stage, and he's five or six, and uh, you know, a little blondie, and oh, so cute, and to realize that he's now an adult musician making wonderful music is is to be. Or another example is uh, uh, Cassidy Law, who I met when she was about twelve. Uh, in nineteen, let's see, well, how old would she have been in nineteen? No, she was eleven. Uh, in nineteen eighty one, um, Eileen Law's daughter. Mm -hmm. and she, by the time. I left the Grateful. By the time you know we were done by 1990, she was uh, working in the box office on the tour, dealing with our guest list, which was the world's biggest. Uh, and now she has a 14-year-old daughter, so it's family, right? It is family, and it goes on and on and on and on. 
and the and the people that come to the shows feel part of the family community, the deadheads, and that's what you know. Again, Skull and Roses, it's, it's really a celebration of the Grateful Dead community, and everybody feels a part of that, a little piece of that. So, are you a deadhead? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I, uh, I, uh, I started out well. At the time, it was the new first Grateful Dead album. I w- in the fall of 1967, I was a college DJ. Okay. Um, and uh, I played Morning Dew a bunch of times. And then for some reason, I didn't stay connected all that much. And then I got to graduate school in se- the fall of 71, and the only person I could talk, I was in this bizarre living situation, and the only person I could talk to was a stone deadhead, um, also a math genius, which somehow went together for me. It, it really does. And he had nothing but Grateful Dead albums, and the only exception was Hot Tuna, of course. Mm-hmm. And um, the next year, he took me to my first show. Um, and, uh, you know, the rest was history. You were I, hooked. I, I was totally hooked from the first the first night. So you were Ten- deadhead before you got the, the gig. Oh, that was why I wanted the gig. Uh, I, I uh, He also sh- told me I should write a book about Jack Kerouac. I was sort of mulling out loud what to do. And uh, I... St- started the book, and about a year into it, I said, aha, these things are all really connected. I want to write two books. One is Kerouac about America in the 1940s and 50s, and the other is The Grateful Dead about America in the 60s and 70s. And the end result eventually took me 20 years. Um, I did do both of those. and But yeah, no, there were all these connections, and fortunately... Uh, I correctly intuited that you know Jerry thought so too. Jerry, when Jerry was eight, eight, sixteen, sixteen, um, on the road was a brand new book. Mm-hmm. He was an art student at, at uh, San Francisco Art Institute. Uh, Saturday they had a special Saturday classes, and his teacher was a member of the beat scene in San Francisco, very well known. My current book is quite a lot about him, as a matter of fact, the one I'm working on. Well, who's that? Uh, his name was Wally Hedrick. Okay. And he was a painter. Uh, he did what they called funk art or assemblage. Um, and um, so he played, among other things, they're painting away, and he played uh, Big Bill Brunzi, uh, acoustic guitar, which ignited in Jerry the desire to play guitar. Um, and then at some point, uh, one of Jerry's friends said, what's this beat thing everybody's talking about? And Wally said, well, you guys are beats. You know, go down, go down to City Lights Bookstore and get this book on the road. And Jerry Jerry did. The, the dumb thing I have to confess is that I never asked him, did you buy it or did you steal it? Oh. <laughs> because I'm betting. I mean, he didn't have any money. But anyway. Uh, but you never know. He got the book. It changed his life. Kerouac. A lot of people's lives. A lot of people. Janis Joplin. Totally yeah, I just read her biography, and she talks a lot. She loved the beat scene; that yeah. she was really attracted to it. And you know, there's you know, you, there you are in Port Arthur, Texas, and you know, suddenly you're reading about the beats, and which caused her a lot of trouble in Port Arthur. But anyway, it got. But her, she fit right in here in San Francisco. She did much better here, and uh, and it's the same with Jerry, except that Jerry, all Jerry had to do was get on the bus, uh, you know, the fourteen mission bus, and and uh, it ran right in front of his one, the end of his block, and it went all the way. To within three blocks of city lights, so he had it a little easier. But but uh, all that uh, you know that that beat thing was 
critical to him. So when I finished the Kerouac book and when it was published, I sent it to him, him and Hunter. And uh, eventually we met and I met, you know, I managed to insert into the conversation. By the way, I sent you a book. Did you ever get it? And he went, you know the guy who wrote the Kerouac book? And he got very excited. And a little bit later, uh, you know, he, he invited me to be the biographer. And although I think I did a decent job with the Kerouac book, um, I mean, the reason that he was excited was not me particularly, but Kerouac really meant something to him. So mm -hmm. That was, was a great connection and a great job for you, by the way. Oh, boy. You, how could you ever top that one? Can't be. No, no, I've, I've, I've had my job. Uh, everything else is just sort of a pale imitation. Well, yeah, I mean, being on the tour with the dead and just how fun is that? How fun is that? It was pretty much about as much fun as I could stand. I always felt like if you had a definition for a deadhead, what, what is the definition of a deadhead? Well, the great thing, all right, I'll, I'll give you just one example. One of the, the best moments of my life was standing on stage and watching the uh, senior senator from the state of Vermont, Patrick Leahy, wearing a tie-dye T-shirt and shorts, boogieing to the Grateful Dead. And I was standing there thinking, you know, it's a better world when U.S. senators dance. <laughs> yes. Everyone needs to lighten up a little bit. Take you a know, deep breath. I was, I, and, and I, he's a deadhead in, in his own way. I mean, you know, deadheads are people who are willing to, to, uh, to go follow the circus and to, uh, to uh, not necessarily conform to everything that, uh, and that's not to say, I mean, there's a billion, most of the deadheads I know are the, you know, the hardworking, taxpaying, Mm -hmm. Family taking care of their families, etc. It's not like everybody's a you know a complete slacker or beatnik or whatever. Or it smells like patchouli um, in the parking lot. No, you know there's plenty of those, but but the fact is that, that there's a cl they're kind of closet deadheads. There's a, and there's just there's just an openness to adventure, uh, intellectual adventure, cultural adventure. Um, you know, one of the most amazing moments I ever saw. It, with the Grateful Dead, was at Hampton Roads once, and clearly nobody knew the song. Jerry started playing, they came out of space, and Jerry started playing what eventually became recognizably Stir It Up, the Toots and the Maytals. Mm -hmm. And the rest of the band had no clue how to play it. I mean, they just, they weren't, I mean, they, you know, they vaguely remembered hearing it, but and it was as as music. It was terrible. <laughs> as a moment of creativity, of of challenge, um, the audience was bananas, and so was I, because they were just they were trying to do something um, out of you know, sort of out of nowhere that you know something that couldn't be done, and um, you know that's why my I mean my favorite Grateful Dead show of all time is uh, the first show, uh, 22869, at the Fillmore West Weekend, uh, which okay. most of Live Dead is from. And um, the first night is, you know, after the first song is gold. I mean, it's just unbelievably good. And the Dark Stars from that night, and I'm pretty sure the St. Stephen's from that night. And, you know, they're just mind-boggling. Do you have a favorite Dead song? Dark Star. It's Dark Star. Oh, yeah. But uh, well, the reason this night was my favorite oh, okay. was, was 
not because it was brilliant. I mean, I, there are lots of brilliant nights. They came back out on stage, and the audience just wouldn't let them go away. And they came back on stage, and and uh, Jerry sounds like he's just run a mile, and uh, he's going, "Well, you know, we could do something short if you, you know, if you really got to have it." And um, they went into the worst rendition of Hey Jude ever known to mankind. <laughs> the, the worst high school bar band you ever heard couldn't play it so badly. And they'd played it a couple of times before, but it was a disaster. And that's why I love them, because they could do the... Sp they went from sublime to disaster in, you know... In, yeah, in millisecond. And everybody was still having fun and... Playing and dancing and... It was st still fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Dennis McNally, author, historian, and longtime publicist for The Grateful Dead, putting on Skull and Roses, which is coming in April... April 2nd through 5th at Ventura County Fairgrounds. And uh, go to www.skullandroses.com. No funny spellings. And it'll tell you all about it. And you'll get to see some great music. You'll get to hang out with Dennis. You'll get to hang out with the Festival Nation crowd. Our podcast will be there. Pantheon Podcast Network will be there. And your people will be there. Every one of them. Lots of deadheads. So join us. And we hope to see you at Skull and Roses. Dennis, thank you so much for all your time and your stories. And it's just been really a wonderful, a wonderful chat. My pleasure. Festival Nation. Celebrating the magical world of music festivals. <laughs> McNally, author, historian, and longtime publicist for The Grateful Dead, and promoter for the upcoming Skull and Roses Festival. Thanks for listening to Festival Nation, where we celebrate the magical world of music festivals here on the Pantheon Podcast Network, and our special miniseries on Skull and Roses, the multi-day festival celebrating the music and community of The Grateful Dead. Skull and Roses returns April the 2nd through the 5th, for its fourth anniversary at the legendary Ventura County Fairgrounds on the Central California coast. In upcoming episodes, we'll feature behind-the-scenes interviews with artists performing at Skull and Roses, including bass guitarist and founding member of Dead & Company, Oteil Burbridge, and guitarist Steve Kimmock. And during the festival, we'll be on site live with our FestCast, bringing you all the news from backstage with plenty of special guests. This year's lineup features Grateful Dead drummer Bill Kreutzmann and his band, Billy and the Kids, O'Teal and Friends, Voodoo Dead, Melvin Seals and JGB, Jackie Green, Keller Williams, Grateful Grass, Circles Around the Sun, Ghost Light, Grateful Shred, David Nelson Band, and tons more. Get your tickets at SkullAndRoses.com. Stay tuned to Festival Nation for your chance to win your pass to Skull and Roses, which has become a mecca for deadheads young and old. To win, email us at FestivalNationPodcast at gmail.com or follow us at Festival Nation on Twitter at Nation Festival or Facebook and Instagram at Festival Nation Podcast. And tell us why you love the Festival Nation Podcast and what band you're most looking forward to seeing at Skull and Roses. We'll find you and you'll be entered to win. And if you have some stories, if you went to a previous Skull and Roses festival, reach out because we would love to hear your stories. Any music used in this Festival Nation podcast is owned by the artist and is used for educational and illustration purposes only. Thanks for checking out, liking, sharing, and following Festival Nation on the Pantheon Podcast Network and wherever you listen to your podcast. Talk to you next time. Peace. Peace.
Davies, love and music. Thanks for being part of the tribe. From Marla Davies and everyone here at Festival Nation, until next time, tune in, turn on.